This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Welcome to Suffolk Law School's IP Issues Podcasts, periodic programs on intellectual property issues hosted by Lando and Anastasi. And I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. And you can learn more about our firm at our website, lalaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss patent licensee standing, the importance of standing, and in general, court decisions that provide guidance as to when exclusive patent licensees may have standing to sue for infringement. Recent court decisions, say over the past two years in particular, indicate that there is often confusion on the part of what are thought to be exclusive licensees as to whether their license is truly exclusive. Joining me today is my colleague, Tom McNulty. Tom is a successful litigator at our firm. He has litigated utility patents, design patents, trade secrets, trademarks, trade dress, unfair competition claims, and even defamation claims, both on the plaintiff and defendant sides, in federal court and in front of the International Trade Commission. He has experience in a variety of industries, including medical devices, lighting devices, specialty materials and processes for forming the same, food processing systems and methods, analytical instrumentation, consumer and recreational products, electrochemical cells, building materials, and automotive components. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's talk about standing. Perhaps a little background on the issue for some of our listeners would be in order. Well, as you noted earlier, there have been a number of people that licensed a patent in, thought they were getting some exclusivity in the field, and then when they sought to enforce the patent and uh, and maintain their exclusivity, they discovered that the license that they had signed did not give them the right to sue. And this is obviously a problem where you're trying to maintain some competitive advantage through a, a patent licensing strategy. I see. So in particular in, in our part of the country, where there's a lot of startups and a lot of technology coming out of universities, this is an issue, and you and I have discussed in the office, of, of particular concern, where a lot of technologies are licensed in and companies are started, and years later they discover they don't have standing to enforce, at least in their name. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think it's also uh, it's become the case over the last uh, five, ten years or so that a lot of R&D efforts are now being outsourced. You know, for example, a lot of pharmaceutical companies these days outsource all their drug development and then license in what the drug development companies come up with. Fair point. That's a fair point. And I would think as well, I mean, I, I, I know some of the cases are among by and among uh, larger companies as well. It's It's perhaps just an area of confusion, and perhaps it would help to have... A, a, Standing definition, standing defined. Okay, well, the definition of standing is basically it's your ability to bring a suit on the patent, or at least the definition of standing as it applies to a patent license. To have standing to sue on a patent, the licensee must have a legally protected interest the the accused infringer is, is impinging upon. And in the context of a patent, to have that legally protected interest, the licensee must have some exclusive rights in the patent. It's not enough that you can practice the patent. You must have some ability to the license to exclude others from doing so. Okay. So even by its terms, what's what's labeled exclusive license or thought to be an exclusive license, even between the parties, sometimes may not be. 
That's correct. I think it's important to note right up front that uh, courts will look to the substance of the agreement and disregard the, the, the title of the agreement. So, you know, if you sign something that's identified as an exclusive license or an assignment or something like that, the name of the agreement will not be what dictates. What are some of the rights that are left to the licensor or left uh, retained by the licensor? Give me some examples that have been found to, in fact, not, in effect, grant an exclusive license. Well, the one thing I think that's sort of interesting to start off with, if the license agreement itself affirmatively grants the right to, uh, to sue, the right to prosecute infringement suits, that also will not, standing alone, be sufficient. I think that's probably one of the reasons that there's so much confusion in the area. It seems like, you know, if you have a clause saying that the licensee has the right to sue, then the licensee would have the right to sue. Uh, But as it turns out, that's not the case. Of course, if if the agreement does not affirmatively grant the right to sue, you will will not have the right to sue. So you do have to have that in there, but, but you should not be relying on that. Okay. In terms of some of the rights, uh, you know, we can go into that in a little bit of detail a little bit further on, but uh, some of the things are sorry, where a licensor, where a patentee tries to retain some rights to, to practice the invention themselves or some control over what the licensee can then do, uh, limits on, on further licensing or sub-licensing or, or reversion of, uh, of the agreement uh, of the patent rights, in, you know, in certain circumstances. Um, these sorts of things can, can cause trouble. So, so a party, the licensee we're, we're discussing, must have true exclusive rights to the patent to bring a suit in their own name. Yes. I don't want to make it sound quite that broad, though. The rights that are granted under a patent, um, there's, there's a few different ones. The right to make, to use, to sell, to offer to sell, and the right to import into the United States. The licensee must have some exclusivity as to at least one of those five characteristics, uh, but they need not have them all. So if you have the right to make, if you have the exclusive right to make under a license, uh, you could potentially have standing to sue somebody who is making, while you would not have standing to sue somebody who is selling something that somebody else is making. I see. And and I, I feel like we, we left uh, just, a, just a point on the table. Can we get behind, um, just back up just a quick second, and speak to the policy. Why Why is standing required? There's two policies that are driving it. The first is it's a constitutional requirement. The patentee is the one granted by the statute the exclusive rights, and the patentee, therefore, must be a party to the suit. Uh, if, you're not, if you're not the patentee, you don't have the constitutional right to bring suit. And then the other one, it, uh, there's a prudential concern that comes into play. Uh, and, and again, this is something we'll get into, I believe, a bit uh, down the road here. But uh, if you have exclusive rights as to some but not all of the rights in a patent, it's possible that you'll be able to bring a suit, but you'll be required to have the, the patent owner join in the suit with you. And this is the prudential concern. Uh, the courts are concerned with, from the defendant's perspective, they don't want the defendant to be subject to the possibility of uh, separate suits, multiple suits for the same acts. And then from the patent owner's standpoint, they don't want a licensee to be able to take action that could affect the validity or enforceability or claim scope or what have you uh, of a patent without the patent owner's input. We've spoken briefly as to uh, exclusivity of of particular rights. How about, uh, let me throw some things at you, how about a, a, a a geographic area? If you have exclusive rights to a geographic area, that is sufficient to give standing, and that is sufficient actually to give standing to sue in your own name as to actions that are occurring within that geographic area. You won't have have the right to sue outside of that, uh, or for activities occurring outside of that area. 
and field of use? Uh, generally speaking, field of use, and, and there's something sometimes referred to as, as an, field of, you know, an enterprise field. If your rights are limited to certain technology areas or certain sort of business spheres, you will likely have standing to sue as long as there's exclusivity. But in that circumstance, you will have to join the patent donor. That has been held not to be sufficient to sue in your own name. Okay. And the theory, again, is that if the patent owner isn't joined... The fear is that they can bring the suit in in their name and subject the uh, defendant to a second suit. Yes, and the possibility of paying multiple damages for the same acts. Okay. I I have been a party to a situation where a a patent owner in an exclusive field license refused to join. What then? Well, under most circumstances, the, the patent owner can be forced to join. There are a couple of circumstances to sort of be aware of that, though. Uh, Be wary of that. There's been a a case recently where the patent owner was a state university and it had not waived its sovereign immunity and could not be joined because of that. Um, And the risk there is uh, if the patent owner can't be joined, the court may well dismiss the suit and you will be unable to bring suit. Okay. And so if if you can't bring the suit, obviously, then, uh, or, or if it's not shown that you have the exclusive rights, perhaps you'd forego damages as well. Uh, you'd forego damages. You'd forego the ability to get an injunction. You know, you're really no better off than a, than a bare licensee. When must, uh, or, or must, is there a particular time when defendant must raise this issue at all? Well, that's sort of the other thorny part of this. The standing issue can be raised at any time during the case. It can be raised at the outset. It can be raised after the defendant has seen how the trial went and perhaps was unhappy with the result. Uh, It can be raised on appeal. Courts themselves can raise the issue even if neither of the parties do. It goes to the the power of the court to hear the case. So it's, it's not a waivable thing. It can come up at any time. It could be after a trial or or after, uh, say, a Markman hearing or what have you, where it doesn't go your way. Sure. And you can raise the standing issue. Sure. And, of course, if it's, uh, you know, if it's after trial or if it's after a significant amount of time uh, in the litigation has gone past, the, uh, the licensee has, at that point, expended considerable money, considerable time and effort. Uh, you know, patent litigation is not an inexpensive endeavor. Now, is that repairable kind of, uh, let's say, after the fact? Can an agreement be uh, amended uh, to, to include? If you discover that you don't have standing, you can sign a subsequent agreement that will grant you standing, but then you'll have to file a new suit. Standing, There must be standing as of the day the suit is filed. I see. And, okay. and you can't fix it uh, after the fact. And, and, in fact, if you try to sign a subsequent agreement that dates itself back to the filing date, that's also insufficient. Okay. So we're seeing, just a summarize to this point, we're seeing a lot of activity in this in this area, but certainly I, I'm, I'm seeing an uptick in the amount of uh, commentators writing about it. I'm, I'm reading more cases that uh, standing has had an impact. We've defined standing and, and discussed how, how it's raised. Um, let, let's recap some of the why it matters. Okay, well, the first and I, I think most obvious reason it matters is, uh, you know, if, if you're signing a license agreement and thinking you're getting some exclusivity, you want the ability to enforce that. So, you know, it's, it's of paramount importance that you at least have standing, you know, even if you need to join the patent donor. Absent that, uh, you know, like, like we said earlier, you're, you're really in a position where anyone else can come and do anything they want. As to why you would want to have standing in your own name and not need to join the patent donor, um, you know, there's a lot of issues, kind of both legal and, and uh, just business sense issues that would come into play there. The patentee may well not want to be involved. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a great deal of time and effort and expense involved with being in a litigation that, uh, you know, the patentee may not have an interest in, in partaking. 
Uh, and while you can force them in, if it's if it's somebody you have an ongoing business relationship with, you know, you'd like to do further licensing with something like that, you'll have to weigh the the desirability of, of bringing them in against their will and, and keeping the suit going, uh, you know, versus the ability to interact with them afterwards. Additionally, if they resist, you know, it, it will take a, a bit of time and, and further effort and money to get them into the case. And in the meanwhile, the uh, the accused infringer is... You know, free to go on his merry way doing his infringing activities. Sort of the, the opposite concern, the patentee may may be delighted to be involved in the case, may want to dictate who's going to do the litigation and what the strategies will be, and may want to share in the proceeds. The sort of back-end things you hope to get out of it uh, kind of come into play at that point. Sure. It's wise then to, and that's kind of standard advice, is to, to get everything in order before you bring a suit, and not the least of which issue is making sure you have the exclusive rights to bring the suit if you're a licensee. As I, from the licensee's perspective, um, I could see how a, a licensor may be willing to settle on terms that aren't in their best interest, uh, the licensor, licensee's best interest. What are some typical situations that arise that, uh, in which a standing uh, question comes up? You know, it can arise in any licensing situation, but there are there are, seem to be a few that uh, that pop up on a more regular basis. We've seen this issue a number of times uh, as as relates to corporate entities, related corporate entities. It's not uncommon for the patent owner to be one, you know, corporation, division, subsidiary, and the practitioner of the patent to be another one. And that can be a problem because something we haven't brought up, one of the remedies that's available in a litigation is, is lost profits, the profit that you would have made but for the infringing activity. And that's only available if the patent owner is the same entity as the patent practitioner. So if the parent owns the patent and a, a subsidiary is practicing the patent, neither will be able to get uh, lost profits. Another area that it seems to come up, and this is somewhat related, inventors that have their own companies license the companies to practice their inventions but don't actually assign to the companies. Uh, so there again, you're separating the ownership from the right to practice. And then I think one of the biggest areas that it comes up is licensing from universities or, or other nonprofit organizations that want to impose conditions on the license. Um, you know, we've seen patent licenses from universities that required consideration of the public good before a litigation could be brought or, you know, required the, the licensing entity to affirmatively take steps to manufacture the product, you know, conditions on what the licensee can and cannot do. Right. And then a, a fourth place that it comes up quite often is, uh, you know, when you get into a patent litigation, it's common for the defendant to want to counter claim. They'll find something that, that perhaps you're infringing or that they can at least make a colorable claim that you're infringing, and they'll license it in and, and countersue you on that. And there, you know, it's, it's kind of the same issue. They're not planning on practicing the patent, and very often the people they are licensing it from don't wish to relinquish their rights to practice the patent. So you'll have issues there where uh, perhaps there's not exclusivity given. In these situations, uh, let's, let's go back and you know, maybe don't have to go over all of them, but in these situations, how do, how do we remedy this standing, say, where the, the licensee how do we remedy these? For instance, in the, in the first where you, you mentioned uh, it arises when there's licensing between related corporate entities, a parent and a subsidiary, or a, or a holding company, which is established for tax purposes or what have you. Do you just add that other party to the suit? Well, in terms of remedying it to have the ability to bring suit, yeah, uh, you, would, you would add the uh, patent owner to the suit. You know, in terms of being able to go after lost profits, well, then you have to make a, a strategic decision as to whether the, the 
reasons you chose to have the patent owned by a, a different entity, you know, the tax reasons or whatnot, uh, outweigh the uh, the ability to go after lost profits. Mm-hmm. Okay. With regard to, uh, I know sometimes universities uh, do dictate the terms, some universities certainly uh, uh, more than others, but uh, dictate the terms of the license agreement, and you may find that it's not so flexible, uh, but per- perhaps a term, we're trying to negotiate a term, that they'd be willing to join if, if necessary? Yeah, um, you know, I mentioned that um, that as a general principle, you can force patent owners to join, but if you can have a clause in the agreement where they're voluntarily indicating their willingness to join, um, that certainly would help out, and particularly if you're dealing with a state uh, institution, um, if you can get something in that they would be willing to join and waive their immunity to do so, that, that would be ideal, because like I say, that's, that's the one where you really risk not being able to bring suit at all. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, let's shift gears, talk a little bit about substantial rights uh, that are passed along in, in a license agreement. Okay. Well, the reason we're interested in what the substantial rights are, because I'm not sure we've actually covered that yet, there's three types of licenses. There's a bare license where you have no exclusivity and you will not have standing to sue under any circumstances. There's an exclusive license where you have some exclusivity, you have the ability to sue, but you'll need to join the patent owner. And then there's what's termed an assignment. And again, the name of the agreement that you sign uh, is not the controlling thing here. Uh, The courts will look at the agreement, and if they determine that all substantial rights in the patent have been transferred to the licensee, the licensee will be deemed an assignee and will have the right to sue in its own name. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're concerned with this all substantial rights phrase. You know, as we said, there's a lot of rights in a patent when they say that all substantial rights must be transferred, it doesn't mean that all rights must too. The unfortunate thing is, you know, they'll look to the agreement, they'll consider all the rights, and then they'll come up with their decision, standing or no standing, without really pinning down which of the particular items is, is the make-or-break item. So there's, there's a little bit of reading the tea leaves involved with this. Having said that, there are a few absolutes. I guess the first one, to have standing to sue, you have to have the right to practice the patent. And that must be expressly included in the agreement. There was a case in Massachusetts last year where a license was silent as to the right to practice. It identified numerous other rights. It it had some language that suggested that they intended for the right to practice to be conveyed, but it didn't expressly say so, and the court found them to not have standing to participate in the suit in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. I recall that. You know, like like we discussed earlier, when you have to have the right to practice, it, it can be in a particular field of use. It can be... In a uh, geographical area, it doesn't have to be a world or a nationwide uh, a right to practice. But if it's not nationwide or restricted to a, a geographic area, if it's a if it's a field of use, the courts will will deem that you have not been given all substantial rights, and and you will be at best an exclusive licensee. Okay, so oftentimes uh, licensors retain some rights. Give me some examples of of what retained rights could kind of scuttle standing for the licensee. Okay. What level um, of retained rights? Well, one of the concerns is always if there's pre-existing licenses. Somebody else has taken perhaps a non-exclusive license before you came along, because then you'll have a difficult time arguing that you have exclusivity and have standing at all. But the other things that sometimes come up, uh, some companies will try to keep rights to develop the patented invention, uh, develop further uh, technology based on it, uh, rights to almost like a shop right, a limited right for the companies themselves or for the patentees themselves to practice the invention. You'll see that often in university settings. They want to license it out for commercial purposes but retain the ability to do things for academic purposes. Correct. That can be a bit of a gray issue as to whether it's going to scuttle the agreement uh, or the standing uh, or not. Okay. 
Uh, what, other, what are some other rights we're looking for? Well, one of the other uh, absolute must-be-there rights uh, I mentioned earlier, there must be an express uh, grant of the right to sue on the patent. Having that in will not automatically give you standing to sue, but not having it in will absolutely not give you standing to sue. And, and there again, you won't even be able to sue and join the patent owner. You'll be, you'll be cut out altogether. Okay. I know in, um, in, in for instance, uh, patent assignment documents, we're, we're careful to uh, make sure we have the right to sue for past infringement. Is that a, something to be concerned about, past versus going forward? Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, well, I mean, it depends on what you've negotiated for in your agreement, of course, but, uh, but that's a necessary clause. If, you're, if your agreement is silent as to past infringement, it will be interpreted to mean only that you can sue for infringements that occurred after the signing of the agreement. So, you know, if somebody's been infringing for 10 years and you sign an agreement eight years into it, you will lose out on the ability to get at that eight years. And that, you know, that may be fine. That may be what you negotiated for, but it might not. And you need to make sure that you're getting what you uh, think you're getting. Okay. How about uh, other, any other? Actually, b- before, we, before we leave the right to sue, mm-hmm. the right to sue should, should basically be an unfettered right. One of the things you will frequently see in license agreements that, that impacts on, on the standing issue They'll grant the right to sue to the licensee, provided that the licensee gets consent from the patentee or, or you know, a clause that gives the patentee veto power or that limits their ability to sue certain entities. You know, a patentee may have a good corporate relationship with somebody and not want to have their licensee suing them and, and you know, disturb that relationship. And, and that will impact whether or not you uh, have been found to have received all substantial rights. So unfettered is absolute. So, so not even kind of a choice of counsel or splitting of proceeds or anything like that? Those things have been found to, to weigh against uh, standing, yes. Okay. And how about some other rights? Uh, uh, the other right that, that generally should be there and generally should be pretty unfettered is the, the right to further assign or license or sublicense. The retention by the patentee of, of some sort of control over you know the future uh, assignments or licenses on the patent is generally sufficient to prevent the agreement from being an assignment. Um, Courts term this, uh, or, or courts address this under the heading that uh, the right to uh, sue for infringement should come with the right to indulge infringements. Hmm. And if you are prohibited from licensing somebody downstream, you're effectively prohibited from allowing them to infringe. I see. Okay. And one of the things that comes up here is oftentimes, again, there'll be some sort of veto power in the licensor and the patentee. And I think it's worth noting that courts have distinguished between an, an absolute veto power or a veto power that shall not unreasonably be withheld. That will, will not necessarily scuttle the agreement, whereas the, the unfettered veto power will. Okay. I, I know there was, um, there was a recent case that I think uh, shed some further light on this whole topic. I'm speaking of the uh, YAV solutions case. And I don't want to get into the facts of that, but uh, if, if you might uh, uh, just just shed or, or share a little of that, uh, why that case may be particular uh, interest to listeners. Okay. Prior to that case, um, I, I, that was about two months ago, I believe, at this point. Um, prior to that case, when courts were analyzing the standing issue, they would look at what the patentee had retained. And Along the lines of what we were just discussing. Exactly. And and. The issue in that case, the patentee had retained, there were a number of transactions involving the patent between uh, parents and subsidiaries and various entities, and along the way, many of the entities had received some limited right to further license or sublicense. 
they were generally restricted to successors in interest or you know subsidiaries of those corporations. So they were they were restricted to a limited subset of people or, or entities. Like I say, prior to this case, that would. I believe almost universally have been found to to be uh, sufficient to scuttle the agreement from being uh, an assignment. But in the in the WEAV case, the WEAV case, the court determined that uh, the perspective that you're supposed to be looking at this from is not from the, the patentee's perspective, but from the defendant's perspective. If the defendant does not have the ability to get a license on the patent from one of these upstream entities, then the plaintiff has exclusivity is against the patent and does have the ability to bring suit in his own name. Okay. And, so. and in that particular case, you know, the limited group of people that could obtain a, a sub-license uh, did not include the defendant. So the licensee may have standing to sue some parties, but but not others. Exactly. Okay. Uh, they, they made it clear that the, the ability and the, the standing to sue will be confined to the scope of uh, the exclusivity. Okay. That, I, I thought, was, uh, was an interesting holding, and I, I've... Uh, I, I thought it was appropriate to at least at least mention. Is there any further points to add on that? You know, just as a general proposition, when you're either licensing in a patent or perhaps um, doing due diligence in terms of uh, buying a company, buying a portfolio, something like that. You know, it's important to look at these licenses and see see what terms are in there and and determine really what it is that you're getting out of it. Fair point. And certainly, before you bring any action, make sure you have rights in uh, at least with regard to the defendants parties you're thinking of suing. Yes, yes. If, if there's any issues, you want, to, you want to clear them up before you bring suit. Okay. And from the other perspective, defendant's perspective? Oh, sure. From defendant's pers- perspective, uh, anytime you get sued by somebody that is not the named inventor, you want, to, you want to carefully look at each agreement and determine whether the party bringing suit really has the ability. The inventor or, or assignee. That or assignee, yes. Right. Well, if there's nothing further, uh, that about does it for this edition of IP Issues from Suffolk Law School. Very special thanks to my guest, Tom McNulty. Thank you all for listening. If someone wants more information on this topic, Tom, how can they reach you? Available at uh, Lando and Anastasi. Uh, Peter gave the website earlier, but it's uh, com. And you, and, uh, particularly, how can they reach you? They can reach me by phone at 617-395-7000. Okay, and you can catch me directly at plando at com. Have a great day, everyone. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.